Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Thank you, Joy. I have, I'm really proud of the work that Joy has been doing in prepping for that conference. I would encourage you to go. It's free, um, and I think it would be well worth your time uh, to uh, kind of press into what the Lord may have for us in that space, and so show up this next Saturday morning. Uh, welcome to church. Very glad to have you guys join us. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 6. Uh, Romans is in the New Testament Find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, take a right, you'll hit Acts, then you're in Romans, then Romans chapter 6. If you, for whatever reason, you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles, the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you. You're welcome to open that. I think it's page 799 is where you want to go. And if you need a Bible, by all means, take one of those. Uh, We want to get the Bible into as many hands as possible. So if you or somebody you know needs a copy of the Word of God, we would love to get that to you this morning. Uh, last weekend was Easter. We loved it. It was a lot of fun. I hope you had a chance to show up. Uh, a bunch of other people did, and we saw 49 of them receive Christ for the first time, and another 27 get water baptized. So, exciting stuff happening here at New Life. We wanted to say that. And if you're one of those folks um, who uh, were either saved or water baptized, and you're here this morning, welcome. We love you. We're very thankful we're here. Uh, Pastor Ron Annette, they send their greetings there um, away this weekend, helping plan and prepare for immersion discipleship, uh, recrafting and reimagining what our internship program will look like in coming years. And so we're excited to see the fruit of what's going on in that regard as well. Okay, Romans chapter 6. Um, question Have you ever, uh, what? Have you ever overheard just a snippet of a conversation at exactly the wrong time? Right? Uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be, you know, walking through a restaurant, you pass somebody's table and you hear, if it wasn't for my horse, I wouldn't have spent that year in college. If it wasn't for my horse, I wouldn't have spent the year in college. And all of those words make sense separately, but together it just doesn't compute and you're not sure what to do with that information. A while back, um, my wife and I were going on a walk and um, there's this two other kind of college-age girls, they were walking the other direction. And just as we were in earshot of each other, I hear one say to the other, I've dated a lot of guys in my time, and I've even dated a couple of Christian guys, but all of the Christians I've dated were real, and then she uses a bad word. And I probably should tell you what the bad word is, because now you're thinking about all the bad words and figuring out which one fits. But. And that kind of stuck with me. I'm like, what? I mean, and, and, I mean, strangers, like ships passing in the night, never seen or heard anything else about this conversation, and that has stuck with me because it's a kind of a reflection, I think, of something that maybe all of us have experienced to one degree or another, which is the phenomenon of Christians behaving badly. And there's a strong chance that you've probably been on the receiving end of some of that, or if you've been hurt by either the church kind of in its more corporate expression or by a Christian individually, um, you probably deal with your own struggles in this space. Pastors, of course, are human too. And so we have um, tremendous battles that we wage within sometimes. There's this, always this tension and this conflict between who we are and who I think we're called to be. And if you have a bad habit or an addiction or a, a kind of a thing that you keep fighting against, and maybe you've, you've felt the cycle, you know, the, the like, I did it again, I am so sorry, I will never do it again, and, and I did it again. 
And you can go around that merry-go-round of misery 10,000 times. And eventually you'll look at what the New Testament holds out in the hope of a renewed life and new creation and changed desires and love and joy and peace and, and all of that kind of thing. And you begin to feel like it's some sort of sick joke that other people get to experience it, but you don't because you're very well aware of the tension that goes on in your own heart. I know I'm speaking from experience here. I've looked at that. And sometimes if you're cynical, you begin to think that either A, Jesus isn't real because if he was, my life wouldn't be doing this merry-go-round of misery. Or if he is real, then he isn't caring or he isn't powerful enough to help me overcome whatever this is. Romans 6 intersects this space and gives us a resource to help us overcome um, this tension. Um, And it's my hope that here in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, uh, that we're going to be able to communicate from Scripture the words of God that will in such a way that I I want one thing to happen in your mind... And I want one thing to happen in your body. So let me show you what I want, what I want you to have happen in your mind. Most of us have a tendency uh, to think a little bit like this. I sin because I'm still a sinner, so, but it's a good thing that God probably always forgives me, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to forgive myself. I want to move us from that line of thinking into, into this, into I'm a child of God, And I am dead to sin and alive to God because of Jesus. And if that concept doesn't make sense now, I'm hoping that by the end of it, it will have a little bit more nuance to it. And of course, the way that we think is going to impact the way that we behave. Now, many of us behave badly, and you say, well, what were you thinking? You're like, I don't think I was thinking anything at all. I was just kind of automatic. Well, we'll deal with that maybe here in a bit. But for the most part, the way that you think is going to have significant, if not massive, impact on the way that you behave. And so a lot of people kind of behave a little bit like this guy. They'll think to themselves, well, I can do whatever I want. It's my body, my choice, and nobody should be able to interfere with that, the kind of idea of the radical autonomy of the self. And that's... As Christians, I want us to maybe move a little bit differently here. As If we think differently, then we're going to see ourselves acting in a way... Uh, that's like this, to a position where we gratefully and gladly submit our whole selves uh, to serving God and what that looks like. Um, So basically, I want you to think differently. I want you to act differently by the time we're done. So this is impossible, um, but hey, let's go for it and expect that we serve a great God. Okay, I'm not good enough to get this done in our lives, but I trust that the Holy Spirit through the text is and that God's Word will be able to empower us to change. So we've got a tall order facing us. We want radical life transformation. We want our self-identity to be changed at a fundamental level, leading to a whole new series of habits and behaviors that glorify God in a way that they did not before. I cannot get this done, but I believe the Holy Spirit can. So let's join together for a moment in prayer, expecting the miraculous this morning. Amen? Okay, Jesus, we need you to change us. So please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word to be transformed in the inner man that we might live a life glorifying you and doing good deeds for your glory and the good of others. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to do what really should not be done on a Sunday morning, which is try to teach through 14 consecutive verses in the book of Romans. Any pastor worth his or her salt will tell you should not be done. You need at least a month of Sundays to be able to do uh, justice to this text. So we will be missing over a lot, but I'm young, I'm dumb, I'm ambitious, and you're stuck with me, and so this is what we're going to do. 
so let's start in uh, the first four verses. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you're a note taker on the back of your bulletin, you can write down Romans 6, 1 through 4, and then that bottom line. Baptism transfers you from death to life. Therefore, walk in newness of life. That's my best approximation of this paragraph in one sentence. Baptism transfers you from death to life. Therefore, walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 follows, and this might sound obvious, Romans chapter 5, which in turn follows Romans chapter 4. So the danger about pulling Romans 6 is that you don't get what's happening in Romans 3, 4, and 5. In fact, I mean, you can pull the thread on that sweater and get the whole thing unraveled, but we've got to start here in Romans 6. But the question that Paul asks at the top of Romans 6 is a response back to a statement he made in the end of Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul will say something so forward, so bold, so shocking. He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds or increases, grace will increase all the more. Now, this is not Paul's first rodeo. And he has preached this message once or twice before, and he anticipates what his opponent will say. Because if you think about that long enough... You might come to this conclusion. The entrepreneurial center will come to God and say, God, I've got a bargain. I've been rereading some of the terms of this agreement, and I think that we might come to a mutually beneficial proposition. How about I am able to keep on sinning just the way I want, and that way your grace is able to keep on increasing and increasing in every measure. Look, God, I get to win because I'm doing however I please, and you get to win because your grace is covering all of my screw-ups. That's the question that Paul asks in Romans 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what was his answer? His answer was a very strong and emphatic, by no means. In the Greek, that is about as strong of language as you can possibly muster. You can almost hear Paul exasperated, spitting through his teeth. No, by no means. How dare you? No, why? But watch the way that he connects this exasperated, no, by no means. It's verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he explains the rationale for why he thinks that that line of approach is so ridiculous, so contrary to the gospel. How can we who what? We who died to sin still live in it. All right. Now think on that for a moment. Um, Paul, actually, no, you're wrong. I have not died. Quite obviously, I'm here. Mm. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about an aspect of us that was in some sense alive to sin has now what? Died. And if we're dead to it, how can we then live in it? Obviously, answer no. 
Okay, verse 3, then he explains how it is that we've died. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then verse 4 will say, just as we were baptized into his death, like Jesus was buried into the ground, we fall beneath the waters of baptism, and then we will be raised again to newness of life. Uh, we're, yeah, we were buried therefore with him. Okay, so this is a kind of a sticky subject. This is the only time in the book that Paul will mention baptism. And if you think about it long enough, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happens if I am a Christian having accepted Jesus into my life but have not yet been baptized? Am I in danger of not being eligible to be raised from the dead? Hmm. Um, I'm going to condense a great deal of scholarly thought into no. <laughs> no, that's not the case. I think what Paul is doing, and you might, might find some to disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. Uh, what Paul is doing by using baptism here is he's using baptism as a kind of shorthand to describe the entire sequence of events that describe salvation. I mean, if you think about it, you didn't just kind of snap into this new kind of life. There was a process of awakening to the presence of God in your life, leading to a heightened awareness or conviction of sin, leading to a repentance and forgiveness, leading to your what we call justification, where God takes your sin and the consequences and condemnation that you deserve and piles them entirely upon Jesus, wipes your slate clean, so now you stand in front of God, declared not guilty, innocent, child of God, no longer longer an enemy of God, but now a friend. And in that moment, we are saved. And then what is the natural response to this kind of overwhelming act of God's grace in our life? Well, it's a public declaration in front of those whom we share this faith community with to say that through baptism, I am demonstrating that I am now proudly, gladfully, joyfully, faithfully on team Jesus, that I live for him under a new set of rules, that my life has been significantly, substantively transformed, and I now live for Jesus, and I am what? Walking in this newness of life. The ancients would use the phrase, you walk in your baptism on a daily basis. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he is so serious about the kind of transformation that occurs when we receive Christ. All of this is past tense. This is what happened in the moment of our salvation, that we participated in some, and I'm going to use the word mystical, I mean, in some mystical sense that we were there as Christ died, we died with him. The part of us that was under the authority of sin. And that part of us was put to death. And as Christ was buried and then raised again by, I love this, the glory of the Father. Not the power, not the word, but just the glory, which is just the presence of God, the weight of God, raises Christ from the dead. He will raise us now from the dead, both in a future sense, but now in currently, so we too might walk, present tense, ongoing in what? In newness of life. Something has changed, and Paul is so serious about describing the depth of this change that he couches it, frames it in terms of dying and being raised to new life. I don't know if you guys caught this in the news. Um, recent archaeological digs, they found um, proof that Jesus was a carpenter. Uh, they actually found his truck. I don't know if you guys saw this. <laughs> yeah, dug this out of the ground in Nazareth. Um, Jesus is a carpenter, but I, it's worth repeating. He doesn't deal in remodel. He only does new construction. Jesus uh, does, Christianity is not primarily interested 
and taking all of the socially unacceptable parts of you, your smoking, your porn, your racism, your gluttony, your lust, your money laundering, whatever, and cleaning all of those up to present to the world a better version of your old self. Scrape off the rough edges, put on a coat of makeup, send you back out into the world with a smile. I'm a good Christian, and the Bible has nothing to do with any of that. Christianity is not the enterprise of making decent people better. It is the miraculous transformation of making dead people alive. So when Jesus comes into your life, the Bible says that we stood condemned under the law. I don't know if you've ever been in a neighborhood where there was a condemned house. The next step for that property, for that place, is for that house to be torn down. And that's what Jesus does in our lives. There was a part of us that was built up under the domain of sin. We serve it. Sin has jurisdiction and mastery over our lives. And Jesus comes in and he says, allow me to tear this down. In fact, he doesn't just tear us down. He doesn't just raise it to the ground. He digs up the foundation, and then he re-pours the foundation on the solid rock of his shed blood on our behalf, and then he builds us afresh and anew so that now what comes, we may look almost exactly the same, but the beauty of Christianity is not simply trying to coat another, uh, put another coat of paint over cracked plaster. It's to build us afresh and anew with new materials in a new power so that we might live in a new way. Jesus makes all things new. And oftentimes, especially for us who are decent, average, middle-class Americans, is that we think we're good enough and we don't see our sin as being the kind of overwhelming stain that needs radical removal. And our pride keeps us back from thinking that we really need the powerful, deconstructive, and renewal work of Christ in our life. We come to God with our, God, if you could help me in this little area, but when in reality our entire lives are kind of kept back from the healing hand of the Master. Friends, I know I I want you to develop a sense of humility that recognizes that you need Jesus very deeply. I need Jesus very deeply. And I say that as the pastor's family kid who grew up as the good kid, did everything right and was a people pleaser. I need Jesus desperately to come into my life and rip me down so that he can build afresh and anew. God deals with empty vessels. And so frequently, oftentimes, if I've, in my own experience, I've found that the times of pain, uh, the times of, well, pain, is God's excavator tearing down parts of my house that he might rebuild afresh and anew. So I don't want you to um, despise difficulty, that may be, not always, but maybe God's way of helping you realize your need for him. And so I encourage you into humility uh, to be receptive to that. Coming back to the text, Paul says in verse 4 that we have, been, we have died with Christ, we've now been raised with him. And it's a, 
that, if, especially if this is the, some of the first times you've heard some of this language, I understand that might be a bit of a stumbling block. In what way have I died? What part of me died? These are not, this is, I acknowledge, it's kind of a difficult and confusing subject. Um, I want to keep moving, hopefully it'll help um, clear up as we move forward. Uh, next verses in verses 5 through 11, it begins like this. In verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, verses 6 and 7 are crucial, so pay attention. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he now lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. The center of everything Paul is saying here in the first half of Romans chapter 6 is found in verses 6 and 7, where it says that the purpose for why our old self was crucified, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? Purpose clause, in order that this body of sin, this physical, corporal, literal, physical body might be brought to nothing. So that, next purpose clause, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul here is using a technique called personification. He's setting sin up as a kind of slave master, and we are its subjects, sold under sin, unable to move. Frequently, you don't know the depth of your bad habit until you try to change them, and then you realize it's much harder than you think it is. We are sold under sin, but here's the freedom that we have now because of what Christ has done. We have been crucified with Christ and the body of the body that served sin the thing that was under that was subject to sin the old condemned house was then torn down so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin so if according to verse 4 we have now been resurrected to walk in a new kind of life this new kind of life is no longer no longer enslaved to sin and then verse 7 is simply the principle based on the argument of verse, seven, or verse 6. Verse 7 says, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, this is why we need humility. To allow God to come into our life and radically renew us into his image. Because once that happens, the Bible is very clear. We have been transferred from a domain in which we had um, served the master sin. And now we do what? We now are transferred. Colossians says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and we have been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus steps into our life and he says, you once served an old and cruel master, the wages of whom was death. I have now out of love sought you out at great price to myself and came into your world and rescued you, not away from the world, but renewed you within the world in which you live, you are now serving a new king. God doesn't set us free in order for us to be able to do as we please. He sets us free, as the text will go on to say, in order that we might serve a new God in Jesus Christ. The reason that grace 
then does not grant us this license for unfettered sin, the thing that Paul is so concerned about in Romans 6 verse 1, is because when the grace of God is activated in a believer, the, the aspect of us that's going to be subject to sin has died, it's been crucified, and the part of us receptive to God's power comes alive. All of that is verses 1 through 10. It's the, it's the declarative. Here's what God has done for you at great cost to himself. He has rescued you and ransomed you. He has paid the price for your condemnation and not only set you free, but now put you in a place where you can serve a new king. And then verse 11, after all of what God has done for you, here's what Paul says. You must also. There's the imperative. What? You must also what? Consider, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the beginning of what I talked about earlier, how I want your mind to change, how I want your self-identity to change. So frequently we walk through life saying, I am a wretched sinner. I mean, the hymns don't help us, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yes, yes, you were not okay. But now that Christ's grace has come into your life, the Bible is explicit and clear. You are no longer a sinner sold under sin, active under its power. No, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how I want you to think differently. If you consider yourself to still be a sinner, well, simply, what do sinners do? They sin. But we are called to... We are called to consider, we must reckon, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means that the power of sin, past tense, has been broken in our lives. Jesus defeated the power of sin through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We win, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. What he has done, and that must begin to infiltrate our thinking in such profound ways that we no longer consider ourselves to be sinners, rather what? Rather, loved, accepted, redeemed, wanted children adopted into the family of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and set free, set truly and actually free in order that we might serve a new king, Jesus, and not the old slave master, sin. And this is crucial. But it immediately begs the question, doesn't it? Okay, I know this. I still sin persistently against my own will, it seems. We're not just heads on a stick, right? Our body is sometimes able to do things that our mind doesn't want us. I know I should go to bed before 2 a.m. Sometimes I don't. My body pays for it later. We're not heads on a stick. Our bodies have um, patterns, habits, ruts we all get into. The same triggers come up. Did you notice this? Jesus saves, great. You get saved on Sunday, same trigger shows up on Monday. You do the same thing you did Saturday. Why? Well, have you been saved, renewed, transformed, bought? Yes, yes, and yes. But we still live in this fallen world. Sin has been defeated. It has not yet been destroyed. And so we live in this tension between the time in which Christ has come and the time in which Christ will come again. He first came to defeat sin. The battle has been won. The war is still being waged. Or maybe the war has been won, but the battles are still being waged. 
And then Christ will come again definitively to set all things right and to renew us into which there will be a glorious future of no more tears, pain, or death. But we live, not then, we live now. And we've, each of us has to grapple with our own upbringing, our own inclinations, our own habit patterns, our own forms of addiction, our own relapse mechanisms, our own comforts, whatever the thing that is that afflicts us. And we have to grapple with those head on. But I want you to grapple with them knowing one thing about yourself, that you are not a sinner. You have been bought and you are now free from the power of sin. Christ has broken that chain that has bound you down. And you are no longer subject to sin in order to do what it must, what it's asking you to do. Verse 12 makes this clear. The point here is because sin has no jurisdiction in your life, I want you to serve God, not sin. Verse 12, let not sin, therefore. The therefore stretches back all the way to chapter 6, verse 1. Everything Paul has said up to this point leads to let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin. Here's the summary argument. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you're under grace. The first thing that Paul says is we must think about ourselves differently. That was verse 11. So you must also reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then the therefore of verse 12 is, includes the word don't let sin reign. That's kingdom language. That's political language. That's domain language. You have been transferred from one domain to another. You now serve a new kind of king. The old power has been broken. Apart from Christ, you could do nothing to escape the power of sin. Now, because of Christ, you have been radically transformed and moved into this new, broad, and wide-open space in which you get to serve God. Now, watch this. So do not present your members. That's your physical body, right? So Paul is holistic. He assumes that we're not just heads on a stick. He says, yes, you must get your thinking in order, but you also must do something practical with your body. You used to serve and present your members to sin, your physical body to sin as what? As Instruments, some translations say weapons, for weapons of unrighteousness. All of us have skills and talents and things that we can do. We've been given a will and imagination and creativity. And some of us have bent that towards things that are ungodly and exploitative and rude and greedy and lustful. And the Bible says, in the same way that you used to do that, stop it. And then present your bodies now to a new kind of king and like Isaiah the prophet of old said here I am God send me allow me to be your um, your servant in this world friends what we do with our bodies has tremendous significance not only from a kind of like kingdom perspective but just in general um, the habits that we keep uh, the routines and the and the flow of our days and our weeks and our months and our years, all of that can be redeemed and renewed as we become set apart as a people still embedded within the world, living lives of distinction. What does Jesus say? You're a city set on a hill whose light cannot be hidden, so let your, therefore, your good works, what you do with your body, so shine before men that others would see it and do what? And then glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because sin will not have dominion over you because you're under grace. You're not under law. So Paul here is working uh, in two directions. He's not simplistic. He doesn't simply say, stop doing it. 
And this is so, I mean, isn't this true? Most of us, we don't need better teachers. You're sitting here and you might be thinking about the thing that keeps frustrating you, that circle of misery that you're on. What is that thing? You probably know. You don't need me to show up and it's like, well, I learned today that I shouldn't look at porn. Oh, all right. I guess I'll stop. It's not that simple, is it? We don't need better teachers. Most of us are very well aware. And maybe, honestly, some of us aren't. And we need to be in more community where people can have authentic mirrors held up to us to show us our own blind spots. I have massive blind spots. Massive blind spots. I need a lot of people to be able to speak into my life. But as a general rule, we don't need better teachers. We need better redeemers. We need people to be able to free us. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do it, but I can't stop. Now what? I'll tell you, as a pastor who's known about Romans 6 for a while and has still struggled mightily, it's, this, is not, this is not an easy sermon to preach because all of the voices that scream hypocrite are shouting in the back of my head real loud. And I've been in places where it felt like if Romans 6 was really true, it shouldn't be this hard. And I don't have insight into all the reasons why there continues to be patterns of addiction and relapse and all of that in lives. I've heard tremendous stories of great liberation of like almost instantaneous overnight like removal of every sort of temptation and stain. That's fantastic. I'm really happy for those people. It's just not my experience. Paul doesn't simply argue from the negative. Stop. Which of course we must. We must look to it. And friends, I know that if you felt like I've got I've to knuckle down and do it better. Yeah, we, I'm not telling you to stop trying but I'm telling you to start believing that the power of God is actually able to beat it, even if it hasn't been your experience up to this point. I don't want you to lose hope because Paul doesn't simply say stop doing. He says start doing something else. And this is actually a really key thing. If you're going to remove some sort of bad habit out of your life, you've got to make darn sure what it is that's going to fill that space. Most of us use a bad habit as a kind of coping mechanism, as a kind of way to numb the pain. Well, Some of us have circumstances that won't go away even if we choose to use a different coping mechanism. You've got to make sure that you're connected to the Holy Spirit in a way that can help you. If you've got a really strong motivation as to why, not not just why you must stop, but what could be if you started doing something different. In my own struggle, I'll I'll conclude, at the risk of sounding too prescriptive, I'll just tell you a little bit of what's helped me in my own journey. A while back, I was fighting a battle, and I was doing the whole, that white-knuckle action, right, willpower. And that sucked, because it didn't work. Um, And then I learned willpower is a lot like a muscle, like a physical muscle. I can sprint, I can run, and then I'll get tired, and then I'll stop. Willpower is a lot like that. It's every time you use it, you lessen your ability to use it better next time. Why do you think you make so many dumb decisions? Why did your parents tell you nothing good happens after 11 p.m.? Right? For me, it was 7.30 p.m., but that's a different story. <laughs> um, it's because, I mean, like, when do you binge eat ice cream? Rarely at 7.30 in the a.m., but always at midnight. All right? Because, uh, because you've been making decisions all day, and eventually you come down to it like, I deserve this. Because your willpower has been worn down. Friends, you can't outrun the bear. 
You can't keep saying no again and again. At a certain point, you're going to have to look at the bear or whatever the thing is and say, it doesn't actually appeal to me. It's not a, it's not a willpower issue for me to resist whatever this temptation is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that I cannot do for you. That's what God must do to radically renew your affections, your desires. I was in that place where I was using willpower alone and I was fighting my battles by myself. It wasn't working. It was getting worse. And all of this shame and guilt, and, that kind of, and now all of a sudden it's not just the, the sin, but it's the shame of the sin and the guilt, and all of that gets piled on. And so I, I checked myself into Genesis process a couple of years ago, and I had to confess to a group of guys, here's, here's me, all of me, and they loved me. Friends, don't fear confession of sin. The Bible says in Proverbs that he who confesses um, and, 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 and forsakes his sin will receive mercy. And I'm so thankful that this church has dug deep into the well of mercy to give people who are broken the chance to be truly transparent and to receive mercy. And friends, as Christians in community, that is a core essential. We must be people of mercy. And then what happened was um, it didn't really work. I mean, it worked some, but it didn't really solve the problem. Because what I realized is that if you treat kind of recovery as kind of like a thing you'll do for 12 or 24 weeks, well, then on the 25th week, you might find yourself maybe a little better, but by the 30th week, you're probably back to where you started. These kind of things take maintenance. So I developed a friend, and here's my thing. You need someone with you. Don't fight your battles alone. You need somebody with whom you can be radically transparent and honest. Um, You need somebody who... um, you can meet with on a regular basis. I had to carve out time in my schedule. So I have a standing Friday morning coffee with a friend of mine. And it's this. It's this conversation every week. How are you doing? And that's an honest question. And that process has helped me remain connected to a lifestyle of healthiness that I don't think I would have had otherwise. And so if you're trying to fight your battles on your own, uh, one of the first things I think you must do is reconsider the way that you think, obviously. I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint. I'm loved. I'm free. I don't have to choose this. I can break this. God will bring you hope, even if you're hopeless, friends. But then you have to have somebody who can come alongside you, and that person's job is to speak hope and truth into your life when you have none. And to give you a swift kick in the hind end every now and again, too. The second thing, and this is literally just me, um, I was at men's retreat, and the guys at men's retreat said, do something, commit to doing something every day for the next, like, three months that will bring health into your life. And I remember the Lord speaking to me, start journaling. I'm like, there are bigger things going on in my life than that, God, but okay. And so I just, like, I have a Google Doc, you know, so I can get it in a whole bunch of different places on my phone and other places. And, and it's, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect a sixth-grade girl to write down, like, today it is sunny and I feel all right, you know. But what it's done is the discipline of having to reflect backwards my day, how I felt, where I felt myself weak, where I felt myself, felt myself tempted. What does AA tell you? Halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. These are places where you're ripe for relapse, ripe for making really dumb decisions. 
So I began through the process of daily journaling, identifying where those halt areas came through in my life on a more consistent basis, and it prepared me to be able to fight the battle more proactively, and it gave me more kind of attunement, if that's even a word, to the grace of God in my life. And I could begin to thank him, and I could begin to mark and record uh, steps of, of healing in my life. Friends, Romans 6 is true even if it's not true currently in your own life. Jesus has redeemed us and renewed us from every stain, from every sin. We are no longer subject to the master of sin. We've been brought new, and our, and our goal is now to submit our entire lives to this new king and to do so within the context of community. And this is why, as I'm going to pivot here to talk about communion, communion is so crucial for us because within it is this sense of we must be doing this together. Friends, the Christian life is not something that's meant to be done as a solo sport. We need one another well. And as we come to the table, I'm praying that as we come to the table and we represent the body and the blood of Jesus, that you, are, you, you ingest within yourself God's grace through his son Jesus Christ, that you remember the sacrifice that he paid in order for you to be truly free. And so as your baptism is a reminder that you are on team Jesus and you're happy about it, communion is a reminder of that Jesus has made you free today. So walk in your freedom and refuse to submit again to a yoke of bondage and slavery. Refuse to allow yourself to think of yourself as something less than Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. You have infinite value to him and that's irregardless of your behavior but from a position of unconditional love that doesn't give us license for sin but rather a license to be able to say now the freedom to truly say God all of me every aspect of me belongs to you and I will gladly serve you that's what communion reminds us of and so as we come forward to the tables this morning uh, do so humbly do so uh, repentantly take a moment if Holy Spirit's been digging in you, address that, confess that. You can even write it down. Start the practice of journaling right now. Um, you can put it onto a prayer request uh, and put it in there. We want to join with you in prayer. Uh, we want to connect with you if we can offer resources in your journey towards wholeness. Put down a praise report. I was, <laughs> I was blind, now I've seen. Put it down there. God will be with us. I want us to come forward to the table. And also, yeah, we bring our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings because we believe in a generous God. And out of his generosity, he's given us everything. We get to give back of everything that we have too. So friends, I want, I want to fill you with hope. I want to ask you to expect great things from God this morning. As we come forward, and I will invite our worship team to come forward, um, as we enter into worship, do business with the Holy Spirit. Confess your sin. Ask for hope. Um, and decide today that you are truly free because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Lord. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.